Uh, we're going to be wrapping up 1 Peter chapter 5 today. Uh, so go ahead and, in your copy of God's Word, head to 1 Peter. If you are using the Bible in the seats around you, it is on page 1,732. 1,732. And uh, my name is Jesse. I'm the youth leader here at Encounter Church, Uh, and so to make myself a little more comfortable this morning, uh, we're going to play games, and uh, Zach, you brought the fudge rounds to pass out? Okay, wonderful. Uh, It does feel different not having snacks and games, but I'll do my best uh, to be a regular old guy this morning and not a youth pastor. Youth pastors can be weird. Amen, students? Okay. (laughs) Uh, First Peter chapter 5 Uh, 6 through 14 is where we find ourselves, Uh, and Peter has been writing uh, to the church, uh, talking about various things, and and he in this moment is going to conclude his letter to them, and that's where we'll pick up, starting in verse 6, and I'll read uh, through verse 14, and the word of the Lord says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, something uh, that most people don't know about me uh, is that I have a hobby. And most people aren't aware of this hobby. Very few are, but I love weather. And I love meteorology. If you look at my phone, I think I have six or seven radar apps uh, that I love tuning into and paying attention to. Um, The cities uh, of the weather that I have on my phone are countless. If you'd like to know what the weather's like in Moscow, go to my phone. I can probably tell you. Uh, I love, I find it fascinating seeing how weather works, cold fronts and warm fronts. When meteorologists talk about El Nino, I'll spend hours listening to it. How different streams of air can affect the weather thousands of miles away is fascinating. Fascinating, And in my spare time, I'll often watch different meteorologists talk about weather in parts of the world that have absolutely nothing to do with me, just because it's cool. And even though most of it's over my head, a lot of the words they say I don't understand, it still amazes me. And there's one particular type of storm I really do enjoy, not enjoy because that sounds kind of morbid, is hurricanes. 
I find hurricanes fascinating, how they start over the ocean and we track them from miles away. I have a, my older brother lives in Florida and ever since he moved there, every time there's a hurricane, I'm calling him every little bit to get updates. I have a man on the inside now and I can ask questions about what it's like to be in a hurricane and I'm always amazed when I'm keeping up with them how far technology's come that we're able to see in the radar, these subtle changes thousands of miles away that make a big difference as that storm gets closer to land and how they're able to predict with a great amount of accuracy what's coming days before it arrives. And as we see the hurricane approaching, the warnings begin to happen and as the hurricane watch turns into a hurricane warning and the storm builds and gets closer to landfall, the warnings and the cautions that are sent out begin to ramp up as well. And they begin, as the storm gets closer, they give warnings every six hours. And then it gets closer, it's every four hours. And it gets closer, it's every two hours. The warnings ramp up, and they say, here's what to be prepared for. That a storm surge is coming. You're going to see flooding. There's high winds. Be prepared. Make sure you have extra food and water. Or the worst case scenario, evacuate immediately. The warnings begin to go out the closer the storm gets. This is what you need to do to be prepared for the coming storm. And overall, as we've been reading through 1 Peter, you get this sense that it's a warning of something that's coming. Especially here at the end of 1 Peter, in the time that he's writing this, persecution against Christians is ramping up. The climate was changing, and Peter saw this and knew this and recognized it. And most Scholars that are way more wise than I believe that it was Nero who was reigning and in charge and most scholars put the writing of this letter one or two years before the great fire of Rome that would come and devastate the city of Rome. And something that happened as a result of that fire is Nero would blame the Christians for the fire and begin to persecute them. So this letter is written just a couple years before this great persecution at the hand of Nero, that Christians were indiscriminately and mercilessly crucified. They were put in gladiator matches and fed to lions. And it's recorded that Nero would even light his garden parties with the bodies of burning Christians. And much like we see in the warning given before a hurricane with directions on what to do, we read that Peter is prepping the church for a gathering storm. The storm, as we read in verse 8, is the enemy who prowls like a lion. And now Peter is giving believers instructions on what to do as the storm gets closer and closer to the readers of his letter. How should they respond? What is this early church leader going to tell them in order to be ready when the enemy comes? And the first thing we'll see this morning, he tells them to be prepared. They need to be prepared. We read the beginning in verse 6 where we started. He says, humble yourselves, therefore. I remember the church I grew up in, the pastor loved to say this one line every time we were reading scripture and he saw the word therefore. And maybe you heard it growing up as well, but he would always say, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what the therefore is there for. Anybody ever hear that? Got to find out what the therefore is there for. I still remember that all these years later. In other words, you got to get context. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, as we've read and studied through 1 Peter, we've talked about many things. 
And as Peter is concluding his letter to the church in 1 Peter, he's bringing it all to a point where he says, Therefore, we've talked about our salvation being in Christ, a call to holiness, what it looks like to live in brotherly love, what spiritual growth should look like in our lives, how we as believers are to act in public, how we're to treat our family, what it looks like to do good in the midst of suffering, And we even talked about how to live when it's the end of the world. We've gone a lot of places. And Peter said a lot of things. And all that he said is leading to this moment when he's closing chapter 5. It's time for Peter to conclude his letter. And so he writes, humble yourselves, therefore, in light of everything I've said, therefore, do this. It's application time. I love application time. So what do we see? He says, humble yourselves. Be humble. All of this has led to this moment. I'm going to let you know how to be prepared for the storm that is coming, for this enemy that is coming. Be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Face value, when you first read it, it seems a bit anticlimactic, right? If this is the movie, the score is building, and you're expecting some great, great secret, be humble. That's it? Be humble. Well, what's humility? Humility can seem very simple, and yet it's profoundly difficult. As those who have lived a little bit of life have learned, it can come difficult. I think it can be easy to poorly define humility because we live in a world where getting ahead and bettering yourself, bettering your life, and getting more is the ultimate goal. It's easy to lose sight of what true humility looks like. We can incorrectly think often that humility is just thinking poorly of yourself. But that's not humility. Humility is not just thinking poorly of yourself. It just means not thinking of yourself. You don't think of yourself. A few weeks ago, or actually last week, I had to go to the grocery store before Thanksgiving, which, boy, that's a trial. And I was at Aldi, and the line was backed up really far, and I finally made it to the front of the line. There was one person in front of me who w- she had not yet placed her uh, groceries on the, on the belt. Um, so I was getting finally close. And they came and they opened the next line. And you guys have been there, right? When that next light turns on and the person says, next person in line can come this way. Is it the next person in line that usually gets there? No. So... In the moment that the lady flipped the light on and she said, hey, the next person in line can come, the person in front of me who was going to be the one that rightfully has that place because she had waited longer than myself, she was the first one in line, and they said, hey, the next one in line. Well, I was deferring to her. I looked at this lady in front of me and I was trying to get her attention. I don't think she noticed. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, they opened that lane. Would you like to go? And before I could even get that out, I mean, elbows flying two or three people, and they just, and they slam their stuff on the thing like first, right? I was being humble in this moment, letting this lady go. I could have taken it, right? And as I watched these people elbow and muscle their way in to be the first one in that new line, the lady, myself, and everyone behind us missed that spot, right? We missed the opportunity. And as I watched this happen, I started to think, man, how much better I am than those people. (laughs) I was so hot. How indignant I was to see these horrible, ungrateful people. 
And I immediately began to think I was better than them. How quickly my humility turned to pride. How quickly I saw these, I, I was humbly letting the lady in front of me go. But then how quickly pride creeps in and says, man, you're better than them. You're so much better than them. See, humility, it seems simple and yet it can be very difficult. It's not thinking of yourself. And we see that Peter had a lot of firsthand experience in his life with this issue of battling humility and pride. We see that Peter and the disciples argued about who the greatest of the disciples were. Peter at one point resists the very reason that Jesus came and tells him, you don't have to suffer and die. It doesn't have to be that way. We see that Peter denied Jesus as Jesus was on trial to save his own skin. He even goes back to his old life after messing up, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But we see that Peter, in his life, would often struggle with living with humility. And so we see Peter, the author of this very passage that we read, had many moments where walking in humility cost him. Not walking in humility cost him. Moments where he allowed pride and his ability to figure it out and do it by myself and pull myself up by my bootstraps. They led him astray. And he's telling the reader here, be humble, reader. Humility is such a great weapon against pride because it's the opposite of pride. Where pride is thinking only of yourself, humility says, I don't want to think of myself. There's a special blessing that comes from someone to someone who's walking humbly. That's why in verse 5, we read that Peter says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore. And then we see in verse 7, cast your cares. He says, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. True humility is shown by our ability to cast our care upon God. It's proud to assume that we can take these things and our own worries and our own anxieties and we can take care of these things that God promised that he would take care of. But I can do it on my own. Charles Spurgeon gives this illustration about this very verse and he gives this illustration where he says, imagine a man comes to your home to move furniture. And yet when he gets to your home, he has this heavy and huge backpack on that he's carrying on his own and he doesn't take it off. And the entire time he's moving your furniture, he complains that he finds it difficult to do the job of moving your furniture. Would you not suggest to him that it would be easier if he laid his own burden down so that he could carry yours? In the same way, we cannot do God's work when we are weighed down by our own burdens and worries. Cast them on him and then take up the Lord's burden which is light and a yoke that fits us perfectly. Casting is an action word. Casting requires us to do something. It requires effort. He didn't say, gently set them down at his feet. He didn't say, let them go. He says, cast them on him. You get this idea almost like you're casting a net. The goal of casting a net into the water is to get that thing away from you. It takes both hands and all your arms. It's an effort that you must put into it. 
When you're casting a reel, the goal, well, at least my goal, I'm sure some people are more strategic, like Adam when he's fishing. He's probably, my goal is just to get that thing as far away from me as possible because that's cool, right? You're casting it. And that's what we get this sense. The pressures and burdens of this life are too heavy and so heavy and difficult that it takes great effort at times to put them on Jesus. We see that we have a God in verse 8 who cares for us. He cares. Be alert. Oh no, I'm sorry. In in verse 7, cast your cares and anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's a great comfort. In my high school class that I teach, we go through, we're going through world religions and cults. And we're reading about all these things that the world has to offer and all these different branches off of Christianity and all these different cults that have popped up and all these different gods that people worship. And one theme that we see over and over again is none of these gods are personal. None of these gods actually love the person that worships them back. And yet, we see that we have a God that cares. The best man-made God, maybe they can imagine he would be good, but never that he would be personal and care. And yet the God of the Bible says that he cares for you. The God who's really there, the one who created it all, is a God who cares for you. I'm reminded of Psalm 8. Who is man that you are mindful of me? knowing that we have a God, that the God of the universe, the one who created and breathed everything into existence, takes his time to care for every individual. We have a kind and caring Heavenly Father that we can cast our anxieties on. This means, knowing this, knowing that the God who created the universe cares for us, makes it easier to cast our cares upon him knowing that he cares for us. This means that we, because we have a God that cares for us, that we don't have to dread the doom and gloom that we hear on the news, that we don't have to lose our peace because of what's happening around us. We don't have to immediately share this scary news article on Facebook so that everyone can see how evil that politician is because other people just need to know how scary this is. We don't have to do that. Instead, we can cast our cares and anxieties on a God who cares for us. We can go to the Lord in prayer and we can receive the peace that only he can give. And here is a really important thing that happens when we do that. Anybody else ever see, I gotta be careful, anybody else ever see kids, <laughs> some, someone else's kids that you don't really know, you're not super familiar with and yet you see the way these kids are acting and you judge the parents off of how the kids are acting. Am I the only one that's done that? You immediately judge the parents. You know exactly what kind of parent they are based off of what their kid did, right? When a child of God is full of worry and fear and anxiety, when the world sees a believer, a son and a daughter of God living with fear and anxiety and they carry it themselves and don't cast it on him, would the world have a reason to believe that their heavenly father cares for them? Our worry and our fear reflects poorly and unfairly on our God who does care. And finally, we see we're told to be alert, verse 8. We're told to be alert. 
Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Other copies of Scripture say be sober-minded and watchful. Don't get caught sleeping. Imagine a soldier standing guard in enemy territory. His job is to make sure he alerts all the people inside their compound. If the enemy gets close, he's going to be vigilant. He's going to be looking everywhere, listening carefully. He is going to be alert. He's going to make sure that if he has something that is distraction to him, if he is going to do his job correctly and make sure that he keeps everyone safe, he's putting aside those distractions. He is alert and focused, sober-minded. Matthew 26 We see that Jesus goes for a time of prayer before his time to be turned over to the authorities to be crucified. He goes off to pray and he asks his disciples to pray with him. In Matthew 26, we see that when he returns, he finds them sleeping. And then he has this conversation. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh will want to rest, but we're told to remain vigilant. We shouldn't become apathetic towards the tactics of the enemy. It can be easy to believe that the enemy's job and his sole purpose and his goal is to just make our lives miserable. It can be easy to think that he just wants to give us a hard time that maybe the car doesn't start, or maybe, I just, maybe there's just something difficult happening today. It can be easy to be lulled into believing that his ultimate goal is just to make us miserable, but he is looking, as we read, for someone to devour. His ultimate goal is our destruction, and he will use any means necessary, whether it's difficult things, but the enemy's crafty. He'll even use the good things in life. In 2 Corinthians, he's... He said that he can also appear as an angel of light. So that is why we must be vigilant and sober-minded, paying attention to what he's doing, what his tactics are, that we're alert, that we're aware. I remember when I first got saved and and I started to follow the Lord and I started to read scripture that I would go and I would listen to this albums I used to listen to or watch movies I would watch or, you know, whatever it was, a program. And I, and I saw it differently. It was this thing of like, oh my goodness, I used to listen to this? This is horrible. I was seeing things from a new perspective. I realized that the enemy was using some really bad things that I had in my previous life to influence me in a horrible way. I wasn't vigilant before, but then when I had the gift of the Holy Spirit convicting me, I was aware of these tactics that the enemy would use. And the heart position changed. So we're told to be prepared. And then we're told to be steadfast. Be steadfast. So be prepared and be steadfast. The first thing he mentions in verse 9 is resist the enemy. We're told to resist the enemy, to stand firm. A secret of spiritual warfare is steadfast resistance. Resist, Dan. You'll have to check me on this, but my Bible told me so. It comes from two Greek words that mean to stand against. The word resist means to stand against. 
We're not told to flee from him. We're not told to avoid him. But we're told to stand against the enemy. Could you imagine going back to our example of a hurricane? The closer the hurricane gets, the bigger it gets. That on the news they say, all right, everybody, go stand outside your house and face the storm. Seems a little counterintuitive, yet when you have the one who created the wind and the waves standing behind you, you can stand firm. You can resist. And we're told not to tuck tail and run, but to resist. And then in verse 10, he says, No, you're not alone. I find this fascinating. Um, Did I get that right? No, it's not verse 10. I got that wrong. Right? Verse 9, thank you. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So he mentions that we can stand firm in the faith because we know that your brothers throughout the world are going under the same kind of sufferings. And this seems a bit strange at first. Why in the world would someone else suffering make it easier for me? Why would it make, help me to be steadfast? And Michael talked about it this morning. And I remember when I was in boot camp in the Navy. You have some good days and some not great days. And then you have some good days and you have some bad days. And as you go along in boot camp, things get a little easier, but some things ramp up and get a little harder the closer you get to graduating. And one thing that people would dread was water training. Water training was miserable because it was always in cold water. And usually you had all your clothes on, long pants, long shirt, because they wanted to teach you how to swim with clothes on. Nobody liked it. And the further you went, the more difficult it would become and the more the rumors would grow about what you're going to face at the end. And things would grow grim the closer we got to graduation. And towards the end, you have this moment where you have to tread water in a big circle linking arms with everyone in your crew, right? You've got 30 guys. You're all linked arms, shoulder to shoulder. And you have to tread water fully clothed in cold water. And to make matters worse, they're spraying you with these water hoses raining down on top of you of cold water. And you have to float arm in arm like that for a couple of hours. Talk about suffering. That was difficult. Couldn't swim with my arms, had to kick with my legs, had to pull up the guy next to me. He would put his weight on me and I would go under and then we'd pop back up and we did this on repeat together. But just when I would be ready to give up, I would look around the circle of men that I had grown to trust even with my life and I saw them suffering with me. Grimacing in pain and discomfort and every once in a while one of them scream encouraging through their own pain. Come on guys, we got this. We can do it. And even though none of us wanted to be there, the fact that we were together made it bearable. And I get the same sort of sense as Peter is writing here. You are not alone. We, brothers and sisters, are in this together. Be encouraged. You're not alone. And as Peter speaks about what is coming in verse 10, the suffering that is coming to the reader, <clears throat> excuse me, there's also a hope-filled promise. We see that God will restore. Yeah, God will restore. 
And so this coming storm that Peter is warning the re- readers about and the God of all gra- uh, is, is, I'm sorry, the coming storm is Satan who comes against us like this roaring lion and he's loud and full of intimidation. We see that Satan roars through persecution. He roars through strong temptation and he roars through accusations against God. The sound of his roar, which are his lies, are still potent and has the ability to devour souls and distract and rob from Christians. But what can he do apart from roar? The roaring lion who seeks to devour us that we read about, well, his fangs were removed by the work of Jesus on the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through him. Yes, you're going to face persecution, Peter even says, after you've suffered for a little while. Yes, you're going to face persecution and difficulties in this life as a follower of Christ. It's a guarantee. Remember the words of Jesus in John 16 when he told his disciples that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Our Savior has dismantled the power of our enemy. Our Savior has risen victoriously and conquered death. And our Savior is who provides for us all that we need to endure and remain steadfast. So the enemy can roar. He can roar through words. But our God has said that blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Our God wins that battle. He can roar and bring accusations against us because of our sin. But our God has said there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our God wins that battle. He can even roar to the point where it costs us our very life. And yet when we read in scripture, we know that to be absent in our bodies is to be at home with the Lord. So let him roar. Because our enemy has him defeated. It's our Savior who keeps us steadfast in the midst of all kinds of persecution that we may face. And that's the promise in verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I wonder if as Peter is writing this letter and this part of his letter to the church, if he's remembering a conversation that he had with Jesus that's recorded for us in John 21. Sometime after Jesus' crucifixion, we see that Peter had gone back to his old life after experiencing some trials and difficulties that he himself put himself in. We see that he goes back to his old life of being a fisherman. And in John 21, Jesus shows up in this beautiful story and he has breakfast with his disciples and it's during this time that Jesus has a conversation with Peter and he reminds Peter what he's supposed to be doing. And at the end of this conversation with Peter, Jesus tells his friend, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but now 
that you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And we're told that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would have and then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me, Peter. Now, as Peter is writing this letter in 1 Peter, he has a lifetime of following Jesus, a lifetime of seeing God's faithfulness, a lifetime of sharing the good news with everyone and seeing his friends that were doing the same and fellow followers of Christ martyred one by one. He has a lifetime of seeing that no matter what trials and storms that he went through, no matter how uncomfortable, or no matter how much he may not have wanted to been there, or how many trials and difficulties he was experiencing, that it was worth it to follow Jesus. And knowing that his Savior would ultimately restore and make all things new. Perhaps that's why he writes in verse 10 that our ability to remain steadfast ultimately comes from him. He will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. If we want to be steadfast, we don't need to pursue steadfastness. We need to pursue Jesus. If we need answers, we don't need to pursue the answers. We need to pursue Jesus. You're seeking comfort? Don't pursue comfort. Pursue Jesus. You need peace in your life. Don't seek out just peace and, and look after peace. Seek out Jesus. He's the one who gives us everything we need. And if we're to live lives that are steadfast and strong, it comes from him. Our ability to remain steadfast in this life is only found in the person of Jesus and his perfect work that he completed on the cross. And it's this work that renders our enemy who roars powerless. And it's also why each week when we gather, we take time to remember his work that he did on the cross and we share in communion together. It's not just something to do in service. It's a reminder of our very source of everything we need. Because of what he did on the cross, we can be steadfast. We can live lives that are righteous because of his work. And this time that we take for communion each week, it is for those who of us have placed our faith in our risen Savior. It's for the church family. And so if you have not placed your faith in Christ, we'd ask that you would refrain from this time. And I'd encourage you. I'd encourage you to submit your life to Christ. Speak with one of the pastors today about what that looks like. I'd be happy to pray with you and talk with you about that because there's no better news in the world than the gospel and that he that knew no sin became sin so that we could be made right with God. And so as we go into our time of communion, we'll take a moment as we're instructed to do so. Spend time with the Lord 
working out things in your own heart, perhaps sins, and a time of repentance before we get into communion. So we'll just take a few moments as a body to do that together. Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me he went on to say for whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, for your, the sacrifice of your son. And God, that through his work on the cross and the pain and suffering that he endured, Lord, that we can do these things that we're called to do as believers. God, that we have an enemy that roars and that seeks us out, God, and wants our destruction. But God, we have so much hope. God, we don't have to worry and live in fear and anxiety because of what you have done. And God, your promise to us. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us here to figure it out on our own, but Lord, you gave us instructions on what to do and how to live. God, remind us. God, when we forget, when we grow apathetic, Lord, remind us of what we're supposed to do, Father. Give us hearts to seek after you, Lord, because everything we're going to need in this life, God, is going to come from you. So God, help us to be people, Lord, that seek you first, God, that go to you when we have needs, Lord, and that cast our cares and anxieties on you. Thank you, God, that your promise is to carry them for us. Father, we thank you for your work, and we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus.